Hi, I'm Bob Whitaker. Welcome to History Respawn. Today we're discussing Call of Duty Black Ops 1 and 2, which follow the history of American covert operations overseas during the Cold War. Players in the Black Ops series participate in the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Tet Offensive, the Angolan Civil War, and the U.S. invasion of Panama. Though wildly popular with gamers, the Black Ops series has been the basis for several lawsuits related to the game's depiction of controversial events and historical figures from the Cold War. With me to make sense of these controversies are Dr. Christopher Dietrich and Dr. Joseph Parrott. Dr. Dietrich is an assistant professor of American history at Fordham University and was recently named as a Malkiel Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. His work focuses on the international history of oil and the intellectual history of decolonization. Dr. Joseph Parrott is a newly minted PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, who specializes in the histories of decolonization and Portuguese colonialism. This upcoming fall, Dr. Parrott will be a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University's International Security Studies program. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Chris, Joe, the Black Ops series focuses on CIA operations from the early 1960s until the late 1980s. And I'm wondering if you could give our viewers a brief background on the history of the CIA and describe how the organization operated during the so-called era of operations. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I can help out with that. Uh, so uh, the CIA was created on July 26th when Harry Truman signed the National Security Act of 1947 uh, into law. This is a key uh, moment uh, in the early Cold War, uh, because this is the moment when the Cold War begins to take effect in terms of specific policy measures uh, within the U.S. The US government. Uh, in 1948, uh, the Truman administration follows up uh, with this when the National Security Council uh, issues what's called Directive 10-2, uh, which calls for covert operations, quote, to attack the Soviets around the world. Uh, and this essentially gives the CIA uh, the authority to carry out uh, covert operations, uh, not only against uh, Soviet-inspired uh, states, but against what are described as hostile foreign states or groups, uh, or in support of friendly uh, states or, or groups. Uh, so the point here is that it can be states, uh, you know, the official uh, recognized leaders of any government, uh, or uh, it can be groups that either... Uh, uh, that oppose uh, those uh, official official governments. Mm, that's that's quite a bit of leeway there. there. There is quite a bit of leeway there. We see that leeway exercised uh, um, in both the Truman administration and increasingly in the Eisenhower administration under uh, Alan Dulles, uh, who is the director of the CIA uh, and uh, brother of the Secretary of State under Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles. Uh, and the classic examples here uh, are the returning of the Shah of Iran to power uh, in uh, 1953, uh, and then uh, plans to replace the Guatemalan president, Jacobo Arbenz, uh, with a friendly, an American-friendly leader in Carlos Armas in, 19, in 1954. Uh, these operations uh, give Alan Dulles sort of the impression of success. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that the CIA can, uh, can guide a nation uh, 
um, to use the euphemistic phrase, can guide a nation uh, to become friendly uh, to the United States. And we see further actions uh, moving uh, from the Eisenhower administration to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations uh, in Cuba, in Indonesia, uh, and in, in the Congo. Uh, so this period in the 50s and 60s is sort of the height of that era of covert operations, uh, and it approaches a series of setbacks uh, in the 1970s under the Nixon administration, uh, in particular, uh, Watergate uh, and uh, the release of the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the creation of what's called a credibility gap for the Johnson administration, uh, the administration of Lyndon Johnson, uh, and with the Nixon administration. Uh, the growing unpopularity of the War of Vietnam is really important important here, too. Uh, and by the mid-1970s, you have reporters, uh, a once sort of pliant press, uh, really digging into uh, the CIA's past uh, past operations. Uh, and there's a, a sort of series of sensational exposés and congressional hearings uh, headed by uh, Frank Church that reveal sort of the agency's illegal surveillance of journalists, of U.S. officials, uh, infiltration in the civil rights and the anti-war movement, uh, as well as assassination plots against Fidel Castro, uh, the Congo's Patrice Lumumba, uh, and uh, and other stuff. And the Angola story happens around the same time as all of this is happening in the mid-1970s. Mm. I think also maybe to add on a, a little bit what Chris is saying, not only are there congressional investigations, but with Angola, there's congressional limitations, starting with the, the Clark Amendment. And kind of going from there. So in the 1970s and 1980s, part of the covertness of the CIA's operations, especially abroad, were about hiding some of what they were doing, not just from foreign governments, but also from the American people who are increasingly critical right, of right. what the CIA do- was doing in the 50s and 1960s and into the 1970s. Hmm. Right. So there's more congressional oversight uh, mm-hmm. and also sort of a, a, a cynicism uh, and self-doubt about the national mood in general and, and about the CIA and covert operations in particular as a form of uh, as a form of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that more of a an issue wasn't made of the fact that the head of the Foreign Service and the head of the State Department are brothers. I mean, was there any kind of worry <laughs> about some sort of corruption taking place there? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, there have always been powerful, uh, powerful people who are related to each other in uh, in government. In the '60s, uh, you have uh, Walt Rostow in the National uh, National Security Council, uh, and Eugene Rostow in the in the State Department. Uh, and in general, no, there's not really that much of a concern about about that. Maybe it's a sign that the State Department was basically giving the go-ahead to the CIA with regards to their operations. Right. I, I think and sometimes a uh, uh, state did know uh, about CIA operations, and other times uh, the State Department uh, is just kept in the dark. Mm. And, and, and it goes straight, uh, straight through the CIA uh, or through some other back, back channel. Mm. So, Chris, most of the missions in Black Ops 1 and 2 occur in the so-called Third World. Where does the term the Third World come from, and what role did the Third World play in the Cold War? Right, so the term Third World was invented in 1952 by a French demographer uh, named Alfred Sabi. Uh, and essentially, he was trying to describe uh, at this early stage uh, this group of uh, what were sometimes called new nations uh, that included uh, the nations of Latin America, which had long been independent, 
as well as recently independent nations and other uh, long independent nations uh, in what today we call the global south. Uh, so in Africa uh, and in Asia, in, in the Middle East. Uh, and the phrase the third world uh, was uh, initially meant to be sort of uh, an empowering phrase akin to the third estate during the French Revolution. Uh, the third world becomes important in the Cold War uh, because for the United States, the Cold War uh, by the early 1950s is becoming this all-encompassing framework. Uh, and there is uh, what the political scientist Bob Jervis has called a security dilemma that exists between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, where the advance by one side is necessarily a defeat for the other. Uh, and this extends into uh, the third world. Uh, so you have these conflicts uh, which might be regional, they might be local, they might uh, have uh, have more to do with imperial power and the rise of decolonization, but they get interpreted through this Cold War lens. Uh, so you have the United States uh, taking on a fairly aggressive attitude because of the Cold War uh, towards broader movements uh, for neutrality or movements that emphasize decolonization. And here the, uh, the sort of hot points internationally are the 1955 Afro-Asian uh, conference in Bandung, the founding of OPEC, in 1960, the rise of the non-aligned movement uh, in 1962, the UN Conference on Trade and Development in 1964. Joe just did a conference on a conference in 1966. Uh, and there's this sort of psychological domino theory uh, in the United States uh, and the sense uh, that nationalism is a threat uh, to American national security. And the United States should uh, should intervene. Of course, the, uh, the high point in this thinking comes with Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, in the mid-1960s. Was the moniker the Third World, was this something, uh, as you'd mentioned, is this something that the countries in the Third World would take upon themselves and use, or is this something that was always kind of considered to be a dirty word? No, this is very much uh, a slogan of solidarity mm -hmm. uh, in, the 19, in the 1950s into the, 19, into the 1960s. And I, I think, if I, if I could actually jump in and add on there, I think one of the things that you're looking at in the 1960s and going into the 1970s is there are various kinds of third world projects, as, as Vijay Prashad has, has kind of said, where there, there are different groups of countries that are trying to build a solidarity based off of different kind of combinations of third world identity and political identity. And so especially after kind of the early 1960s with the UNCTAD conference and also the Tricontinental Conference in Havana in 1966, there's an attachment of kind of revolutionary solidarity to the third world identity that was pioneered a, a decade earlier. And so you start seeing really concrete cooperations from global South country to global South country, often in direct opposition to what they see as imperialism. So the United States, American foreign policy, um, a kind of global Western capitalism and things like this. And this becomes very important when Cuba is cooperating uh, with Angola or trying to foment revolution in Latin America. They're seeing this in the global south as part of a kind of tri-continental movement or third world movement in opposition to kind of Western imperialism. Mm, so right. they take, take the phrase invented by the first world as kind of a way to attack the first world, to defend mm -hmm. themselves against it. Right, and, and what's interesting about that is you have uh, these sort of uh, marginal, uh, once marginal actors uh, become very important in these different uh, in these different networks. Key cities of, of key countries become really important meeting places. Uh, so Joe mentioned uh, mentioned Cuba, 
uh, Algiers, um, mm-hmm. in Algeria, as a recent book by Jeffrey Byrne has pointed out, uh, is a key is a key place. Um, North Vietnam is a, is another is another key place. Uh, arguments about uh, Palestine uh, become a key source mm-hmm. of solidarity. Arguments about South Africa and the white minority regime in Rhodesia. Uh, continued Portuguese colonialism uh, also become uh, become important. As do arguments about sort of an economic uh, entrenched systematic economic inequality uh, more more broadly. Uh, so it's a moment of great upheaval uh, in, uh, in in this period. Well, speaking of Portugal, uh, Black Ops 2 begins with a mission in the former Portuguese colony of Angola. Mm-hmm. And this mission uh, features the uh, persona of Jonas Savimbi. Uh, and I would wager that most of our viewers have very little knowledge of <laughs> either Angolan history or Savimbi himself. So, Joe, I'm wondering if you could provide our viewers with some background on these topics. I mean, you're right. I mean, Angola and especially Jonas Savimbi aren't kind of taught in the majority of American high school history textbooks or even college courses. But, I mean, it was kind of this pivotal case of the global Cold War beginning in 1975 onward. And and Jonas Savimbi was the the president of UNITA, the Union for the, the Total Independence of Angola, which was a nationalist organization strong in the the southern part of Angola among the Ovumbundo population um, that's fighting against, uh, after 1975, the, the communists, the socialists, however you want to describe it, uh, government of the MPLA, which was uh, the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, who had kind of taken power in 1975 when independence was uh, achieved. And these two groups, this kind of uh, UNITA in the south and the MPLA, which was extremely strong in Luanda, had been fighting each other since before independence was achieved Mm. in 1975. And the MPLA had always been socialist, certainly left-leaning, had uh, strong, long attachments to the Soviet Union and later to Cuba. And so in 1975, when it looked like the MPLA was going to be taking power in Angola, the United States uh, and a few other countries, most notably South Africa, decided that they were going to support the anti-communist nationalists who had been competing with the MPLA Mm. in Uh, Angola for control of the country when independence was finally achieved. And there was another group that was in the north under uh, a man named Holden Roberto, who was kind of interesting. This received the majority of U.S. support in 1975 during this period of decolonization. But after they were kind of defeated and faded away, uh, Savimbi and UNITA became the most important symbol for anti-communism in Angola. And so from kind of 1976 onward, Conservative elements in the United States, Cold Warriors in the United States, were championing Sabimbi as kind of, you know, this representative of uh, American capitalism, of American democracy, uh, against this kind of MPLA force backed by the Soviet Union and and backed by Cuba. And, you know, this became very controversial. I mean, Savimbi was not uh, for a long time a capitalist. He was actually a Maoist. He identified Mm. himself very much as this kind of third world revolutionary. But after 1975, when most of his support was coming from the United States and South Africa, he kind of um, pivoted. And this became extremely important to the United States after 1975, specifically because Cuba was actually sending troops and advisors to aid the MPLA and its fight to control the country. And so this became a a Cold War hotspot. And 
um, originally supplying arms um, to a small amount, supplying military aid, uh, the United States essentially looking the other way as the South African, tro uh, South African government actually sent troops in to help UNITA fight the MPLA. And so this, this was an extremely big issue. It actually led to, like I mentioned earlier, um, something called the Clark Amendment, which limited what the CIA could actually do in Angola as an attempt to kind of walk back covert operations after Vietnam. And so there became a domestic battle about how are we going to fund this kind of uh, anticipating the Iran-Contra affair and slowly popular will got to the point where they actually roll back the Clark Amendment and by the 1980s, I believe when this game takes place, the United States is actively funding Savimbi's fight against the MPLA, this guerrilla fight against the MPLA yeah. as part of the Reagan doctrine, right? Yeah. This idea of rolling back the Cold War by supplying anti-communist nationalists with funds from the American government. And that kind of is the background of what happens with this war. So Savimbi has UNITA has this army that's fighting against the MPLA and these Cuban soldiers in Angola. And it becomes a very hot war, despite this kind of Cold War moniker that we tend to think of, you know, in Angola, in a number of other countries in the global south, there was active fighting by communists against anti-communists with support from not just the Soviet Union, the United States, but also governments like Cuba, governments like South Africa that were acting as proxies for these kind of nominally you know, capitalist democratic interests right. versus these nominally communist interests. Right. I think it's interesting. I mean, I know a number of our viewers would probably be aware of American support for civil wars in uh, Vietnam, for instance, and mm -hmm. elsewhere. But uh, this history of American support for Savimbi in Angola, I'm sure, is almost wholly unknown. And I think the game, surprisingly, does a good job of at least pointing to some of these issues. For instance, mm -hmm. Uh, Savimbi is seen as, in the game at least, as somebody who's incredibly violent uh, and, and you know, wholly uh, uncaring about loss of life. Um, and also, you do get a sense also of this presence of Cubans uh, mm -hmm. in Angola. And it's rather surprising to me, at least, as somebody who's played uh, the Black Ops games, that they've actually done a relatively good job of pointing to these issues uh, in a first-person shooter. Yeah, I mean, and it's I kind of appreciate it, right? Because there, there's clearly some of the nuance of these big political issues left out, but they actually are hopefully just kind of spurring people's interest. Why were there, there Cubans in Angola? And maybe if you've ever seen um, Red Dawn or something, people might be making connections, right? The yeah. the Cubans who are talking about Angola who also invade this town in the United States, right? This is something that was very big in the 1980s and was very familiar to people, but, you know, has since been kind of lost to the pages of history for the average person mm. because there were not American soldiers put in there in any kind of large numbers as there were in Vietnam. Instead, it was us providing weapons, providing money, sometimes hiring mercenaries, right? right. But not sending U.S. troops, and therefore it's much easier to forget. Right. So... Speaking of Savimbi, uh, Black Ops 2 has been the basis for two lawsuits uh, mm -hmm. regarding in-game representations, uh, not just of Savimbi, but also of Manuel Noriega. Mm -hmm. uh, and with Noriega going so far as to actually request royalties for his appearance in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you two make of the representation of Savimbi and Noriega and other historical figures in this game? And at what point does a historical figure become fair game for these sorts of representations? Yeah. 
Well, I, I guess I'll take a stab at Savimbi and, and let Chris discuss Noriega. But um, this is, I mean, that's actually how I first heard about the fact that Savimbi was in this game because of the lawsuit. And and honestly, when I when I went on YouTube and I and I watched the video, it the the depiction of Savimbi kind of tracked with a lot of the things that I've heard about him. Though clearly, you know, it's a bit exaggerated. It's a bit one dimensional. I mean, he was this kind of larger than life figure with this when he wanted to, this booming speaking voice, you know, relatively charismatic personality. Um, he traveled the world convincing people essentially to support his revolution. He wasn't just this kind of warmonger toting, I think it was like a, a handheld grenade launcher or something. Yes. Um, he spoke something like seven languages, I mean, including African languages, Portuguese, English, French. I mean, he, he mm. was extremely intelligent. And, you know, he referred to himself as Dr. Jonas Savimbi because of the studies he had undertaken in Portugal and Switzerland, um, though he honestly did like dressing the part of the general. He often, you know, portrayed himself as he was in the game, taking on this leadership role, sometimes getting involved with the fighting himself when he wasn't traveling around the world. Um, and, and, you know, critics have gone so far as to, to call him a warlord, which I think in many ways is, is an apt. Uh, description, though, you know, both sides um, by the 1980s had become somewhat militaristic, had kind of crossed over into that um, warlord type area. Um, and, you know, what the, the game doesn't do. So, you know, I heard some people say, you know, these were fairly sympathetic descriptions or depictions in the sense that he was just this war leader. I mean, it doesn't show him using child soldiers. It doesn't show him... Um, ruthlessly killing his close associates that that happened quite a bit, especially in the late 1980s. And there were even accusations and fairly well-supported accusations that um, he burned women at the stake that he accused of being witches, which mm. I'm not sure that he actually believed, but certainly he thought played well with certain areas of the country that still believed in traditional ideas of religion. And so, you know, I can't say that he ever wrote a an armored personnel carrier or anything, but I think the depiction itself is is fairly accurate and it offers what seems these kind of heroic images of him without delving into some of the the darker depths of what he was capable of during this war. And so he he's a much more complex character than I think is shown in the game, but at the same time I, I think there's a lot to warrant that depiction and and certainly some people might see that as heroic or or as as kind of fighting the good fight against communism as as they did back then and so i think in some ways it's it's a fairer depiction than than his children certainly might be willing to admit hmm. chris what do you think uh i don't have a problem with how they're depicted because they're video games right um uh, they can't go into all the detail we're going we're going into now i i agree with a, a point that uh both of you guys made in a previous previous conversation uh that it's good uh, to start a discussion um, uh, and to just understand uh, uh, who these who these characters characters were. I think our job as historians uh, is uh, is to try to do our best to depict to depict things in the most accurate way possible. Uh, just as Joe has uh, just as Joe has done with with Savimbi. In the case of Noriega and in the case of these lawsuits, I suppose that it has to do with the. Uh, uh, with whether the uh, video game company owns the life rights uh, to these to these people and has paid and has paid for them in the legal world. Uh, more broadly, I, I have a, a similar critique uh, to Joe's about about the depiction of these of these characters uh, in the sense that since it is uh, I, I don't remember how you described it, Bob, a first 
a first-person shooter game. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, so what you what you have is you know what draws us to this uh, to this sort of game uh, is that first uh, first-person perspective. But with that narrow perspective, you tend to lose sight of the broader context and the and the bigger uh, and the bigger causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's very little discussion uh, in the case of Noriega uh, of broader issues of structural inequality of U.S. and Latin American relations. Uh, there's no real discussion uh, of sort of the long history of endemic racism, the legacy, the legacy of imperialism, uh, and capitalism for the most part is also just left off. Uh, is 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 off the hook uh, in terms of systemic causes of these of these violent uh, violent situations. Uh, so I think that uh, that more information uh, about that sort of issue is always is always good. Uh, but this is a good starting off point. Mm. Well, so in addition to Savimbi and Noriega, uh, Black Ops Two also features Oliver North, uh, <laughs> who served oh, as an advisor. Yeah. To the development of this game and actually portrayed himself in the game uh, a younger version of himself uh, so North not only served as a historical advisor to the development of the game but also appeared in several promotional videos for the game as well uh, yet his presence in the game was the basis for uh, a lot of controversy for many players who remembered his role in the Iran-Contra affair so, Chris, uh, you know a bit about this, and I'm wondering if you could give our viewers a background on Oliver North and Iran-Contra. Well, uh, let me just say that I never expected to utter the phrase that Oliver North is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, um, and maybe this is just an example of Marx's famous proposition that history happens twice. The first time is tragedy, uh, and the second time now is farce. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Oliver North... Uh, was involved in the Iran-Contra affair, uh, which is related to the discussion uh, today uh, because it does involve uh, U.S. support um, of uh, a group that's acting outside of uh, the traditional uh, interstate system. I guess we should start in 1979 uh, when the Sandinistas, uh, this uh, sort of Nicaraguan uh, revolutionary group, uh, overthrew uh, the second-generation dictator there, a guy named Anastasio Somoza, uh, and uh, and came into power. Beginning in the Carter administration, but really continuing into the Reagan uh, administration, uh, there is concern that uh, the Sandinistas uh, are aligning themselves too closely with Cuba, uh, and therefore, uh, from the Cold War perspective, with the Soviet uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, Reagan actively supports uh, these a group called the Contras, formed mostly out of uh, Somoza's former, uh, led mostly by Somoza's uh, former personal guard. Mm. Uh, and uh, the support of, of the Contras uh, extended uh, most famously uh, to uh, the CIA helping them mine Nicaragua's harbor mm. uh, in the early in the early 1980s. Uh, the result of that was that a couple of uh, a couple of ships, uh, a couple of foreign ships, were damaged, uh, and Congress got involved. Uh, and here, this uh, tracks back to Joe's uh, Joe's discussion of congressional oversight, uh, beginning with uh, beginning with Angola. Uh, and they passed an amendment called the Boland Amendment, uh, which explicitly forbids the CIA or quote any other agency or entity involved in intelligence activities uh, to spend money to support. Uh, to support the Contras. Uh, Reagan signs, uh, signs this uh, measure 
but uh, basically the Reagan administration ignores it. Mm. Um, uh, there's a certain amount of white, uh, what's called white propaganda uh, to the U.S. people, which depicts uh, the Contras as a democratic resistance. This is where the famous phrase, the freedom fighters, uh, uh, comes, uh, comes into play. Um, and then uh, in 1985, uh, you have the beginning of uh, the Iran uh, of the Iran Contra scandal, and here you have a link uh, between two trouble regions uh, for the United States in this period: uh, Central America on the one hand, uh, and the Middle East uh, on on the other. Uh, in the Middle East, you have uh, a group of Iranian-backed uh, terrorists, as Reagan. Uh, as Reagan called them, as they're uh, commonly understood uh, understood to be in this time, uh, they're working out of Lebanon and they have hostages there. What Reagan wants to do is to free free the hostages. Uh, and his national security advisor, uh, this guy named Robert McFarlane, uh, he goes by Bud. Uh, so Bud McFarlane uh, suggests opening up a channel uh, in the Iranian government uh, uh, to begin to discuss uh, the release of hostages. Uh, in uh, in Lebanon, um, and the hope is that uh, they'll be able to do this by offering a carrot uh, to Iran uh, uh, through the sale of uh, of arms. Uh, then uh, Oliver North uh, believes that, uh, and, and we think that he hits on this idea sometime in 1986, uh, that the prophets made selling the arms to Iran. Uh, in order to secure the release of hostages, and Reagan had famously said that he would not negotiate with terrorists, right? right. Um, that they're going to use that money, uh, they're going to siphon that money off uh, to buy weapons for the Contras, mm. uh, which has been uh, for, uh, forbidden by uh, by Congress. Um, so basically trying to make two wrong moves make a right <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Oliver North would defend himself as saying this is uh, this is necessary for American American national security when he goes on uh, when he goes on trial. Uh, and there's a great picture of him holding up a microfilm uh, uh, that uh, that your viewers might be interested uh, might be interested in uh, from this time period. Uh, at any rate, to make a long story short, uh, the reports of the Iranian arm deals are somehow leaked to the Lebanese press. Uh, and very quickly, uh, they're picked up, uh, picked up in the United States, uh, and you have the scandal uh, that we describe as Iran Contra, uh, um, but then was called Iran Gate uh, in, in reference to Watergate, right? Uh, to the Watergate affair, uh, and this raises a serious, uh, a serious number of issues um, because uh, during the uh, during the trial, uh, uh, John Poindexter. Uh, who uh, was uh, who succeeds uh, uh, McFarlane as the national security advisor? Uh, John Poindexter testifies that he and North kept Reagan in the dark uh, during the entire uh, during the entire proceedings, uh, so that he would have plausible deniability. Mm. Uh, so Reagan could say that he didn't know about this. Uh, but this reveals uh, to many people this idea of a presidency um, of a presidential administration, sort of out of. Uh, out of control. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what do you make of Oliver North uh, kind of profiting from this past history and working with Call of Duty uh, to make this game? I have my own personal opinion about, about <laughs> Oliver North. Uh, 
uh, it was a long it was a long time ago. Um, it, it makes sense that uh, that he would that he would do this. Uh, you see him, uh, you know, working as uh, sort of a public a public talking head uh, all the time, all the time these days, especially if you watch Fox News. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not I'm not that surprised about it about it at all. Uh, he was fairly young when the Iran Contra uh, occurred, uh, and so I'm not surprised that you know almost what 30 years afterwards that that he's recovered from it uh, in in some way and, and you know become become a professional. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt that he was running a, a, a covert a covert operation. Mm. Um, we, we, uh, he was caught. He was caught doing it, so it makes sense for him to spin his experience, as such as it was, uh, into uh, uh, into professional life afterwards. Mm. Well, maybe he's not the one that needs to recover. It's us. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe so. <laughs> Uh, so I've got a final question here for both of you, um, and it involves this history of the CIA and American covert operations, uh, which is you know kind of routine, routinely the basis for a lot of novels, films, uh, and now video games. What do you two think is behind the fascination with American black ops in fiction, and what effect do you think this fascination has on how we remember that past? Mm. Well, I, I guess I'll I'll go ahead and, and jump in first, and these are kind of some some half baked ideas that I'm I'm thinking through. But I think there's there's something about the the kind of mystery of covert operations, what's going on, and it's not just I, I don't think people in general who are excited. Historians are very interested in kind of delving the depths and seeing what the United States was involved in on ways that you know we may not have known before. And so mm-hmm. even when you're going through the the kind of crown jewels of the CIA with the church committee that that Chris mentioned before, I mean this is high news stuff. This is this is a lot of eyes glued to the television watching what information they could get from the church hearings to see what's going on, not just because of the secrecy of it, but sometimes I think because of the the kind of clear buffoonery of it. I mean, some of the stories that you get coming out of, of Iran um, with with the issue with the Shah and Kermit Roosevelt, some of the things that you hear about, about our plans to assassinate um, Fidel Castro with like exploding cigars. I mean, they're just interesting. Right. And the whole and, CIA program with experimental drugs as well. Exactly, exactly. And and one of my, my favorite, and I think I can say this on, on the podcast, one of my favorite was this half-baked plan that the CIA had very early in its beginning of you know, dropping um, extra large condoms over the Soviet Union and having it say, you know, American sized medium or something like that. Um, it was just this, these kind of buffoonish ideas that they would come up with to to win either, you know, uh, mentally or in terms of morale, the, the Cold War. And I think also that, that there's a sense of um, adventure that goes along with it that plays very well in these kind of first person shooter games. And this isn't something that we've just kind of attached on to it looking back. I mean, at the time, it was very much seen as something that people who are conservative or who are very concerned with anti-communism or the Cold War, this was an adventure they could have. And so there were a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there were there were a few kind of low-level American conservatives who got very involved with the Contras, who got very involved with Jonas Savimbi, and one of the most important was Grover Norquist, you know, who's mm-hmm. very famous now for his tax pledges, right? But in the 1980s, he was this kind of young conservative, and he traveled to Africa to make contact with Savimbi and talk with him 
and, you know, go out in the bush. And he had this kind of, you know, anti-cold, anti-communist Cold War adventure youth mentality. And it was something that was very exciting. And then he'd come back and kind of champion this as this mm. is something that we need to do. These are freedom fighters, right? right? And I have this certain cachet. I have this certain legitimacy because I have been there adventuring with the freedom fighters. And so this is something I think that, that we've really inherited. Um, and it's been pushed by James Bond. But I think now as we get into gaming, we're, we're starting to get into these these kind of you can be there too type of things that people very much experienced in the 1980s. And it was it was quite a bit of a rush. So it's natural that we'd remember it in this way especially as we're looking back on history memories get a little bit fonder you know this seems less violent less destructive than it was at the time and this this kind of adventure aspect gets um exaggerated and so mm. i think that's kind of natural yeah i i agree with the the point about the exaggeration of uh, of adventure um and also the reasons that that joe gives for our uh, our society's draw uh to that, so the momentum it seems it seems to have gained in the popular in the popular consciousness, and I think that's happened for the same reason that uh, that we've always loved loved spy spy novels. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a combination for me of of setting and, and character. Uh, the settings are exotic, uh, but also very real, very very gritty, uh, and you can imagine yourself. Uh, um, you can you can have sort of these Walter Mitty type. Uh, delusions, delusions of grandeur, right? You're ushered into a room, a clear fire burns in a tall fireplace, uh, and a man in a black suit waits for you with his back turned, uh, and then he turns around and gives you your mission, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> and a it, glass of scotch. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's a way, uh, but it's a way, as as Joe was saying, to reach uh, reach into the lives of uh, of people uh, who sort of uh, live at the margins, right? Um, of violence, uh, you know, vice, folly. Uh, these baser fears uh, and instincts and instincts of mankind, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, why it's so uh, so these these games and these novels are are, are so popular. Uh, I think there's also uh, and this moves into uh, the effect of that. Uh, there's a sense of sort of the uh, rose-colored goggles uh, and fond mm-hmm. memory, as Joe nicely nicely put it, uh, and I think that uh, comes in part from a sense of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that gets lost a little bit uh, when when playing the game, and I think it leads uh, to an air of, uh, of sort of moral nihilism uh, yes. that that can be that can be dangerous. Um, and this is something that all the good novelists uh, play on is sort of the balance in between uh, uh, righteousness and, and and the danger of uh, I guess the slippery slope of, of nihilism. Uh, and if you read. I think the best uh, novel on this is Joseph Conrad, uh, the secret, the secret agent. But it's stuff that uh, John Le Carre understands. It's stuff that Owen, mm-hmm. that Owen Steinhauser, uh, Steinhauser understands. Uh, and I think that as historians, uh, what we're interested to do is sort of capturing how people thought that way, uh, but also looking, as I said before, at the circumstances uh, that make those thoughts uh, and the set of beliefs legitimate. Um, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, wiping the dust off of uh, off of the first person Ray Bans. Right. Yes. Nice. That's a, that's the title of your game, right? First person Ray Bands. Product product plug. Uh, and and I think there there's also a little bit too. I mean, it, this is in some. I mean, we're we're looking back at history. We're thinking very critically of this, but this does kind of capture the kind of post Cold War zeitgeist, right? Of we won 
the Cold War, and this very much plays into that American attitude. And I think one of the reasons why you have this kind of celebration of it is because we're coming at it from a, a primarily American perspective. And if you were creating a similar game from a South African perspective or from, you know, uh, an Angolan perspective, it it would be much harder to ignore some of those nuances. But because we're so peripherally involved in a lot of these conflicts and also because, you know, we've, we've put on this post-Cold War kind of winner's mentality. It's it's almost the same way with, you know, World War II, right? right. We were the victors. This was the good fight. And therefore, the game should reflect that. And the only negative here is this kind of violence we're participating in. But this was all part of some larger goal. And I, I think that's kind of been forced on it in a way that, that pushes people even if they, they want to be aware of the violence, it pushes people to downplay that as some kind of worthy sacrifice for a larger mm. goal. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Joe. And, you know, with reference to World War II, uh, you know, this is a game uh, that comes out of a series, or these two games are coming out of a series of games that uh, previously focused on the Second World War. And mm -hmm. now it's very popular at least in games media, to criticize those earlier iterations of Call of Duty games in the Second World War because they don't focus on some of the bad war narrative. And in particular, mm -hmm. there's almost no reference whatsoever in those games to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we are on the precipice of receiving a new series of uh, games set in the Second World War, and those look to be more inclusive of some of these other events that maybe don't play into this kind of old triumphalist uh, narrative about the Second World War. And maybe that gives us hope that uh, that same sort of uh, criticism, that same sort of analysis could be applied to something like uh, Black Ops 1 and 2. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. maybe I'm looking at it with uh, the rose-tinted goggles, uh, like Chris was saying, but uh, uh, we can hope, I think. Right, I think I think we can always always hope, and there's an example of how to do it well in uh, in novels, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, most of the great the great war novels focus on uh, on the experience of uh, of the soldiers and uh, and how soldiers question uh, the righteousness of their of their cause and the balance between uh, that uh, that sense of duty, right, uh, uh, and uh, the reality. Of uh, of warfare uh, and mm -hmm. the disjuncture uh, between the stated reasons to go to war and the actual reasons uh, for going uh, for going to war. So I think there is. I agree. I think that there is hope. Mm. Well, on that optimistic note, I think that's going to do it for us today on History Respawn. Thank you so much, Joe and Chris, for joining me on the show. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bob. If you enjoy History Respond and you'd like to contribute, please check us out on Patreon and tune in next month for a new episode.